which is a book designed to make us think. So um, um, we'll hear some interpretations of this in a moment. Starting with verse uh, 8, chapter 7, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And do not say, why were the good old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Sounds kind of like a, a fortune cookie uh, statement. got to find where Richard is. He said he would raise his hand when I was speaking too long. <laughs> so, so any rate, oh, I got you over here. Thank you, Richard. Matthew 13.52 suggests, uh, it says, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a householder which bringeth forth out of his treasury things new and old, antiques and new things. And so today I bring you some things that are new and some stories that you have maybe heard before, but by God's grace with our, the times that we share will have a little more meaning. Uh, before I start, I'd like to just bow my head one more time for prayer. Heavenly Father, these are your dear children. Each one has burdens to bear. And so we pray most desperately for your Holy Spirit to come and share this time with us and bless us as we each need. And I thank you for giving me this opportunity, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will blank out any of my words that are not appropriate, and that your words will shout so loud that we cannot help but hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. It was one of those days, those, those days, that when October's drizzling rain comes, you wish were not in the past. One of those days that after you've existed through a damp, squim winter, that you realize maybe just around the corner when summer comes. It was a perfect day in squim. And it was a Sabbath day as well. And it was one of those days when the sky is clear, except that occasionally a cloud slips by, skating on the, on the wings of the wind. Not a day that's so hot that you run for the sunscreen, but just right, so you're nice and warm, and you don't need a sweater or a coat. It was one of those days that you just enjoy and wish could last far longer and squim than they do. And so my little three-year-old son, Ty, and I enjoyed that Sabbath day, and it was long spent and towards evening, and I still had a little bit of energy left, and I could see he had a lot of energy left. And so I said, let's go put the sun down. And he looked at me kind of questioningly, and he didn't know what I meant when I said, let's go put the sun down. But he knew that whatever the adventure was, it was better than going in the house and getting cleaned up and going to bed. So he was anxious to jump in the van and, and the ride up to the top of Deer Park, up to 6,000 feet, uh, was not, not something that he was going to grumble against. And we drove to the very tip of the highest that we could go, a special spot for us up there. 
And as I jumped out of the car, it was like, it was like the fragrance wrapped a blanket around you. It was, it was a mixture of nature's perfume that only Mother Nature can figure out from a thousand different things. You know, there was a sweet smell, which I just love, of the alpine fir when the sun is baked in. It's so sweet, it's almost syrupy. But then on the other hand, there was the pungent fragrance of those fur needles, those same fur needles that when they were young smelled so sweet, when they, when they retired and were tanning on the ground gave forth that, that fragrance, spicy smell that they do. And so they're all mixed up with wildflowers and heather and all this just kind of wrapped around you and you just almost could drink the smell of the air. It was so perfect. But then as soon as your senses heard or felt what you could smell, then all of a sudden the sounds intruded too. The sounds of 10,000 little bugs and bees humming away at the end of the day, hurrying to fulfill their quota before their shift was over. And then there was the song of the occasional bird or a hawk flying high above. It was a perfect day. And I went along the craggy rocks and I found a spot underneath some, some fir trees and it was kind of on a slope. Uh, you know, I think even your chiropractor would approve of it. It was just like a nice, uh, an, a nice place, a chase lounge to lay down under the trees, and it was padded by thousands of retired pine needles, just soft. And so I laid down there looking straight at Hurricane Ridge, and I kind of just leaned back there and said, Come on, Ty. And he laid down and put his head. I said, it's just about time for us to put the sun down. Now, I think every one of us knows that the sun is moving all day long, but there's something special about it. If any of you have watched the sun sink into the ocean, you almost can hear it sizzle as it hits the water. You know, it's almost like it's steaming, but... Not so in the mountains. When, when the sun came down and started to touch the top of Klahani Ridge, it was more like an angry volcano and the little bit of clouds that were there seemed to erupt like lava flowing as the sun started sinking into the mountains. And it was, it was an awesome scene. And it just... The sun kind of hovered there half behind the mountain and half visible, kind of like it wanted to take one more look at this beautiful Sabbath day and make sure that it had warmed everything that it was supposed to until it went to some other foreign land. And so there we were, leaning back or laying on those soft fur needles, the warm wind just soothing you, you could still feel the heat from the rocks coming up. And there we were watching that sun. And it seemed like it just shivered there for a second. And then it dipped out of sight. And all of a sudden, without even noticing it, it was quiet. There were no more insects sounding. And it sounded like the wind was holding its breath for a moment and not sighing through the needles of the pine trees any longer. It was just quiet and it was just awesome. Like all nature was saying to Jesus, what a wonderful day that was. And I'm wondering what my little three-year-old boy is, is thinking because he's never really watched the sun actually go down. And so I'm wondering what's he thinking and so I sat there for a moment just enjoying the quiet, and all of a sudden he just, 
burst up like he just jumped up and his face was all aglow. And he said, do it again, Daddy, do it again. (laughs) Oh, we might laugh at the naivete of a little boy. But oh, how much, even from the pulpit, I heard it, oh, you know, tomorrow's a memorial for Al Stover. How we'd love to hear his welcoming voice as he used to come up to you and say, how are you today? And give you a firm handshake. And Iris's work in the church. How often we say, oh man, for the good old days. As one person said, what was so good is that we weren't so old. But that's, that's not exactly it. We long for some of those things that are gone and we can't make them come back. And there's times we'd like to say to our Heavenly Father, do it again. Bring back that loved one. And we can't. And it's very interesting, our, our quote, thank you, John, for reading that this morning. It says, it is not wise to ask, why were the other days, the olden days, better than these it's not wise. The, the clear word says it's not wise to live in the past. And I ask myself, all my life, that, all since I've been a Christian, I've been, liked the book of Ecclesiastes, but I thought, well, what's wrong with the good old days? I remember back in 1974, man, a Chevy 2 Nova with a brand new color, burnt butterscotch. It had bucket seats, and it was the first year with a hatchback, and it had fancy wheels and floor shift. I mean, I would easily, you know what that car cost me? I made, I made a whole four bucks an hour in those days, and that car only cost 28 If I was to buy a new Camaro today, $2,800 would hardly cover the license and the tax. What was wrong? What was wrong with saying, oh, the good old days when I could afford a car and I only made $4 an hour? Oh, if I could just, I, I would gladly give twice that much if I could have that car back. I saw one in a magazine similar to it, the same color, and they only wanted $9,000 for it, the good old days. But that car didn't last long enough. It didn't last very long at all in my world because ah, of all the silly things you can imagine, my wife wanted to buy a house. A house! Could you imagine, instead of a nice sports car with bucket seats, she wanted to buy a house. And so, out off of Old Olympic, we bought a three-bedroom house with a view of the mountains. It was a year old. It wasn't brand new. But it cost us the whopping sum of $18,000. Now, we could have gotten a new one. It would have been $18,900. If you went out there today and you offered the people 10 times that much for that house, they would look at you like, where have you been? What was wrong? Didn't God like cheap houses? Didn't he like housing? Think of the housing problem in Squim if housing was only $18,000 for a three-bedroom house with a view on a country road. There wouldn't be any homeless people down here hardly. Doesn't God like cheap houses? Why doesn't he say, or why does he say it's not good to live in the past? 
I think of, I think of our church. Uh, those were the days <laughs> when there was the Cliff Cruzies and the Jeff Dawsons and the Gary Caswells and the Charlie Clinkies and the Bud Millers and a number of other of you that are here today. And you know what those guys did? You know what they did? They went over. They went over to Newport, Idaho, where Nancy taught, and they built a school in one day. They built the whole school, the skies from Squim. And then we went out to Miller Peninsula. There was a homeless family there, and we built the house there. And then when Jeff and Terrace's house burned down up towards Deer Park, we went and we built a house in one day, and Mike Balkan had it wired, and somebody else had the cabinets in it, and we were tough. And today I groan if I have to pick up two two-by-fours at the same time. What was wrong with the good old days? Why can't I look back and say, oh, if we could only do that again? What was wrong with that? When I lived way up in Palo Alto, up on Jimmy Come Lately Creek, I live just up the creek from where Kurt Howe lives now. It's uh, kind of the end of the known world there. Everything else is, is wild from there to Aberdeen. is just wilderness. And uh, I had several dogs, but one that I had was named Yento. He was a <clears throat> Samoyed. And he was pure white, beautiful dog. He was just as happy as if he was in his right mind. And he, he was just, he was maybe street savvy, but he was not savvy for the country. He didn't even know how to step over a log, hardly. He'd like, was somebody going to move this log? I, you're expecting me to walk here? And he just, and besides that, he had a little sight problem, I think. So I had to be really careful because there, there's a bear that lived out between Kurt and where I lived, and there's a cougar that would visit pretty regular. The neighbors would see it, and I would see signs. And so I had to be really careful not to let Yento out away from the house unless I was with him because Oh, he was, he was so happy to be free, and if I accidentally left something open, I'd look around in the field, and I'd see his white tail waggling above the, the grass and the, the flowers. He would be out there investigating and having a good time, and Yento was, he was a good dog. He was a really good dog, and Cameron was a little boy then, and, and Cameron really loved him. He'd lay on him like a big rug. And so <clears throat> this one morning, I let Yento out into the yard. And I was getting ready for work. And when I came back, or got ready to go back out to my van, I noticed that he wasn't back in yet like usual. And so I... <clears throat> I uh, Called him a couple, three times. Nothing happened. No yento. And I walked out the door, and then I saw the gate out towards where my van was. Some idiot had left that gate open, probably me. And so I panicked out. I thought, oh, no, I heard the coyotes out there this morning. And those of you that have lived around Squim, and have had dogs, you know what happens. The coyotes are very, very clever about leading the dogs out, pretending they're either romantically inclined or just their friend, and they lead the dog out farther and farther and farther until the dog's away from any help, and then, then the dog becomes their meal. And I knew that. I knew that from experience and from other stories that other people had told me here in Squim. And I had heard the coyotes. I thought the ones we had were beautiful, but all of a sudden I was kind of terrified that they were going to uh, 
they were going to catch Yanto. So I ran out of my house after I'd put some shoes on, ran off across the field past the little pond that I had there, hollering after Yento, no Yento, handful of goodies and hollering, dog treats, dog treats, dog treats, no Yento. Down across the little bridge I'd built across Jimmy Come Lately Creek and up to the meadow on the other side. And as I looked out there, there past the little park that I made, there was Yanto having the time of his life. You've probably heard of the movie Dancing with Wolves. Well, here is Yanto out there dancing with the coyotes. Oh, he was having the time of his life. He was playing and leaping in the air, and they were accommodating him and slowly herding him towards the forest, the edge of our property. And I knew what was going on. As soon as I saw it, I knew what was going on. And I thought, I don't dare run out there for fear if he sees me coming, he'll think it's a game and he'll run off and he'll run closer to the forest. So I thought, what, what can I do? And I thought, I, I should holler. And all this time, he's jumping up and down and just frolicking. He just looked like he was having the best time of his life, jumping up and down and, and just having a good time with those coyotes. And I hollered at him. I said, Yento, Yento, dog treats. And he didn't hear me but a couple of the coyotes did. And I, I can still see this one coyote that turned around and kind of faced me and came towards me a little ways like, you don't dare touch him, he's our dog, he's not yours. He's our breakfast, now you get out of here. I mean, it, that coyote just had the most belligerent look on its face that you could picture a coyote having. And it was just like, you stay out of here. But I knew, uh, and I, all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, the coyotes won't attack me. I don't think there's only four or five of them. But it kind of made me almost back up. But I thought, no, I have to call my dog again. And so I hollered out again, Yento, Yento, dog treats, dog treats. And this time he perked up and listened. And he started coming towards me, and those coyotes crowded in front of him and tried to stop, but he was a little bigger than they were, actually. And he kind of plowed his way through, and you could see how angry they were. I said, come on, you to dog treats. I was so excited to see him coming. And so he ran to me, and he wasn't very far before the coyotes, just the whole pack of them just disappeared into the woods, just melted out of sight. And I think one of the reasons that why we are not to look backwards or to say the good old days is for the same reason that I tell you the story about Yento. He had no idea what lay in front of him. He had no idea that he was close to death. And all of us, wherever we grew up in whatever church we in, we had no idea where this world was going to go. You know, maybe a few hippies out in Blinn, but not a town full of homeless people. Not drugs everywhere including finding $7 million worth of drugs out in the beach here east of Port Angeles. Looking at a generation that has been devastated by drug use and by all kinds of other things that we couldn't have imagined, I think we were like Yento. Our our robe of righteousness, which we put on by God's grace, was white. And we were wanting to do all 
that God wanted us to do, but we had no idea what was out in front of us. Whether it had to do with old age or whether it had to do with the way the world was going or politics or anything else, we were ignorant, as ignorant as gentle, what his future would be. We were ignorant then. We didn't know. We didn't know in our happiness, in our youth, in our enthusiasm, that Jesus was still suffering. You see, he was suffering because every year from the year that I was born until today, every year Jesus loses about two million of his kids just to war over politics or over religion. Two million. And so while we are content to build houses or to build schools or to do this or to do that, we're not as excited about the second coming of Jesus as we ought to be because we didn't necessarily share his pain of all the people around us that were not saved. And we wound up doing lots of good things, but perhaps not having the Holy Spirit to the degree that we need to usher in Jesus' new kingdom. We didn't share the enthusiasm with him. We were excited about being Christians, but we were ignorant of what was coming upon the world. Up in Alberta, at a place called Foothills Farm, it is the equivalent of Sunset Lake for the people uh, at the Canadian College uh, in that area of Canada. At any rate, I, I went up there, and it's a beautiful campground, hundreds of acres above the Red Deer River and includes the red deer down below. Now, the last time I was there, it was 30 below zero, <laughs> and the Red Deer River was frozen solid, and there was a moose walking right down the middle of the river. But that's not my memory, my prime memory. It's a beautiful location with the, a higher plateau where the lodge is, and then goes down below to the river bottom where there's meadows for the horses and cattle to graze on. And there's every kind of wildlife you can think of that's down below. And the man that ran the Foothills Ranch was or a farm. I can't remember his last name, but his first name was Wolf. He was uh, uh, probably it was Wolfgang, but it, he went by Wolf and he was a German man, and he loved nature. He just, he, he wanted to know all he could about it. And so one Sabbath after, after lunch, he said, hey, you want to take a walk with me down by the Red Deer? And so we walked away from the lodge and down, down this roadway that led to the land below where the red deer went through, but there was little offshoots from the river, little sloughs where there was cattails and all kinds of watery growth and little woods and whatever. At any rate, as we were walking down there, he, he told me a story of which I have probably told you before, but of which I won't forget. He was going down that hill, and as you go down, you have this long slough coming in and cattails and stuff and all kinds of reeds growing over here. And on this end of it, as he was coming down, 
He's just walking quietly, and all of a sudden, this coyote leaped up in the air with the most horrible sounds. It was obviously in its death throes as it leaped high in the air with all these terrible death-sounding moans and groans and then fell down to the ground. And he was immediately wroth. He was sure that somebody had come in on the campground land and had set a trap and that that coyote was in the trap. He was sure that that's what was wrong with that coyote. And he was like, oh, what do I do now? How do I get that animal out of that trap to set him free? Well, he was sitting there pondering, wondering and angry and looking around and trying to just, and the coyote again leaped high in the air, higher than you'd imagine it could. And with the most awful moans and yips and cries, it fell down at the ground like it was dead. But this time, when he watched it, he saw it's not in a trap. There was nothing on the coyote's feet. And so as he, as he looked at it, he thought, what's wrong with that coyote? Is it possible? And then his thought was, oh, man, maybe somebody poisoned it and it's dying. And he was again angry over that. And so he started on down the hill quietly, wondering, what, what should I do? How do I help this coyote? And again, it leaped in the air. And same moans, horrible sounds, it just grotesque. And he thought, what am I missing here? That coyote is not chained down. It just leaps up in the air and it falls to the ground and just lays there. And then it does the same thing over. And he thought, what am I missing? And he looked around and there was the pond. And there's over here's a couple of blue herons. And they're feeding in the pond. <clears throat> and that's, that's all he can see. And he's looking at that. And he's looking at those blue herons with the coyote leaped up in the air. Well, the blue herons, when they heard all that noise, they looked up and they're craning their necks towards the coyote. And they're watching him like, what in the world? He's totally crazy. That coyote has lost his mind. There's something wrong with him. And they're watching him and they'd watch for a little bit until he hit the ground and, and then he'd go back to feeding. And he kept thinking, what is going on? Why is that coyote doing it? And after about the fifth time it jumped in the air and he's looking around saying, what is going on? Is then is when he saw it. In the rushes behind the two blue heron, hidden away low to the ground was one more coyote. And every time the first coyote would leap in the air and give all these mournful, crazy sounds, and the <clears throat> blue heron would cran their necks and look, that coyote would stealthily make a couple, three steps closer to the blue heron in the water. Until finally, when the crazy coyote leaped up the last time, <coughs> excuse me, the second coyote made a wild leap, grabbed one of the blue heron by the neck, and took it down. And all of a sudden, the crazy coyote wasn't so crazy anymore because he knew exactly where lunch was. <coughs> I tell you that story because if there ever was a time in our lives, or at least in our nation, in our lifetime, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. We can look at politicians, whether it's in our state or our government, and we could say, what are those crazy guys doing? And we look at them, 
and we make our comments favorably or against them. <coughs> but our eyes, no matter what we think, when we're looking at something else besides Jesus, Satan is sneaking up on us at a time that you think not. Oh, how we crawl for the... I walked into Walmart the other day with my mask on. I, I had my mask in my pocket, and I put it on. <coughs> and I went to the side and grabbed a newspaper. Uh-oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Pardon me? I didn't understand what that signal was, but... any rate, somebody was trying to tell me something. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Nancy. That was kind, Linda, or whoever thought of that. I appreciate it. You don't give me much of a pulpit to hide behind here. Uh, so thank you, and forgive me for any rate, as we look around, there's a lot of things that can take our attention away from, away from Jesus. You know, and coming up here in a little bit, there's 10 days of prayer. And we can say, oh, it's just like any other. Yeah, it's just a campaign to get us to pray. But when we look around us and see the possibilities of us being distracted. At any rate, I was telling you about Walmart, and I got off track with the water. But anyhow, I walked in there, had my mask down because I was talking to the guy that I got the newspaper from. And this other guy <clears throat> comes out of Walmart, and he doesn't have a mask on. And he says, hey, isn't it great? We don't have to wear a mask anymore. Isn't it great? And everybody's fleeing, you know, from him. Because we don't all think exactly the same. Some of us are very determined to wear masks, and some of us are very determined not to, and, and all the way in between. It says, you say, well, why... Why shouldn't I be interested in my government? Why shouldn't I be interested in what they say? And this is, comes from Desire of Ages. It says, the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive on every hand with crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from the earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart, not by decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, <coughs> not by the patronage of worldly great men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by the imparting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if we get distracted, there's plenty of coyotes out there, let me tell you. If you read the paper, there's coyotes everywhere drawing your attention to something that makes you angry or maybe gets your approval, but it takes your eyes off of God. And it's time for us, perhaps, 
as a church to draw closer together. You know, coyotes can come in all different kinds of uh, shapes, you know. Uh, I read this little quote, this kind of interesting uh, from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. And it, it shook me up a little bit. It says, do not make your opinions, your views of duty, your interpretations of scripture, a criterion for others, and in your heart, condemn them if they do not come up to your ideal. Do not criticize others, conjecturing as to their motives and passing judgment on them. I thought, I remember the day when I would get angry if people didn't read out of the King James Bible. What are you doing, you heretic? You're reading out of the New International or something. It's just a coyote. It takes our eyes off Christ, and we ought not to be doing it, whether it's a mask or a... It says, your views of duty or your interpretations of the scripture. Man, that's coming close to home. It's time for our church to get the coyotes out, to not be looking at the difficulties that, that we think somebody is crazy like the coyote was, but to be looking up and to be looking at Jesus. I remember what in my life was the, the very worst days of my life, the three most anxious, most stressful, most hurtful days of my life are just very, very clear to me, even today, 10 years later. Cameron's mother, my grandson's mother, had passed away from an overdose of drugs. I was the only person in the whole world that he was acquainted with well enough to even call by name. His dad was so overwhelmed with the loss of Leanne that he went deeper into drugs and instead of avoiding them. And so it was a troublesome time for me to raise this little boy to start all over life at 68, trying to, to make a new, new home for this little guy. And amongst all the struggles, you know, I, I praise the Lord because a lot of people in church helped out, not only on Sabbath, but on other days. But it's still, the days I worked in Seattle, my babysitting bill was 60 bucks a day. And I, I struggled to make it work. I did my very best to be mom and dad. And in that time, as I was struggling over the months, I went to court and got temporary custody of him so that I could I would have authority to get him in school or whatever that needed to be done. And so if I had help with babysitting, that was, that was a big help. <coughs> and, and one day one of his relatives said, well, I, I can take him tomorrow. He can play with his cousin. And so I said, oh, okay, that, that would... You know, I guess I'm greedy. It would save me a whole day of babysitting money. And he would have a, a place that I thought was safe for him to go. And so I left him there and went to Seattle to do my work and came back in the evening and went to pick him up. And uh, she was standing out in the front yard and, and the look on her face wasn't real friendly. And she said, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna keep Cameron. And I said, no, I said, I, I've got custody of him. I said, he, he, 
He doesn't feel comfortable anywhere else. I said, I know that. And she said, no, I'm going to keep him. And about that time, the sheriff's car pulled up. And the sheriff stepped out of the car and asked me if I was causing trouble. And I said, no, I came to get my grandson to take him home. And the sheriff had a bunch of papers in his hand from the court. They only, the papers looked really good and they said that she was to be a, a custody of him. The only trouble is that they weren't signed by the court. They were just submitted to the court. And the sheriff misunderstood and I said, no, I got the real papers. I said, my, my request for custody was accepted. And I said, I, I have custody. And he said, no, you don't. Here's the papers right here. And I argued with him for a little bit. And he wasn't really a very nice deputy and not, not, <laughs> not like Nancy's uh, stepson, Josh. He wasn't like him at all. And he says, well, if you're going to cause me grief, he says, you say one more word here. He said, if you don't choose to leave, you say one more word. He said, uh, I'm going to have to put you in jail. And I couldn't believe my ears. Here's, I have custody of this little boy. And they're telling me she has custody of him and that they're going to put me in jail for trying to abscound with this guy. And I was beside myself. And then he made a couple more threats beside that if I didn't leave right away. And so I had no choice. I went home sick at heart because I knew this little guy. He'd stayed with me every weekend from the time he was a year old. And he didn't know anybody else much besides his parents. And I knew that he'd be terrified and sick and there was nothing I could do. And so I went on home and bright and early the next morning, I got out the phone book and I started looking at attorneys. And I went through the, the Port Angeles phone book and I thought, oh, it's better if I just go there. So I took the phone book and I went, I'm not kidding you, you, <laughs> you might think this is an exaggeration, but it is not. I went to every attorney in the phone book that was at his office. Lots of them were at a convention somewhere. So they were out of town. Lots of them said, no, they weren't even interested. They wouldn't even talk to me. And the few remaining that would talk to me said, you know, uh, we can give you an appointment in about 10 days. And I said, 10 days? I said, I need to get that little boy back now. The word is his aunt is going to take him to California so I can never find him. How can a hillbilly from a squim find a little boy amongst 30,000 people in California? I knew I would never see that little boy again if I didn't do something right away. And so I just started almost pleading with each secretary that I went to, can't you get me an appointment today or maybe tomorrow? Tomorrow was Thursday. And finally, this one kind lady, uh, she said, why don't you get some paralegal help? And I said, I already called and they're two weeks out. They're not even taking any appointments. And she said, no. She said, here, I'll tell you what to do. Here's where the lady's office is. She said, you just go there and you sit there ahead of time so you're there before she comes and she'll come into her office at two o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, when you see her go in, you just get up, don't talk to the administration, don't talk to the secretary, just walk to her office like you have an appointment. And of course, when I get there, there's all kinds of other people that are waiting for this lady too. 
But I did as the first secretary told me. I walked right in as soon as she was there, and I just blurted out my, my case with tears and pleading. I said, my little boy is going to be gone if I don't if I don't get in touch with him. And she said, well, this is terribly wrong that the sheriff would impose something that she said, I can see it's not on the court document. She had all the computers and everything. She said, well, we don't have anybody to help you, but here's what you need to do. And she gave me all the file papers. She said, you fill all of these out. You take them to the court right away, because if they're not there by 10 o'clock tomorrow, you aren't going to see the judge on Friday. I was so overwhelmed with gratefulness to that lady. And so I filled out all those forms, every one of them, and you can bet I was at the courthouse waiting for the door to be unlocked. And I paid my fees that I had to to file those papers so that I could see the judge the next day. When I went in the next day, I, I don't know about you, but being in a courtroom when you're not familiar with it is not a real comfortable thing. And I went <clears throat> in that courtroom, and then when he called our case, and he's looking at it, and he's saying, well, what's the deal here? He says, we've already given you custody of this little boy. You have temporary custody. And I said, I know, but he was abducted by a relative. I didn't know at the time that that relative had already stolen his identity and used his social security number and had gotten thousands of dollars from social security that I didn't even know that he could get. She had gotten all of that and she was afraid that I might discover that she was getting all the money and hadn't taken care of him a day in her life, just stolen his, his identity. I didn't know any of that. And he says, well, he says, uh, he said something to his secretary. He said, there's a phone number here, he said, on this other application that we rejected. He, said, he got his secretary right in the court to call that number. And I was saying, oh, Lord, please, please let that relative answer. So they answered the phone. He said, this is Judge so-and-so. And he said, uh, we're here, here. And he says, there's a little bit, it seems like there's a misunderstanding. He said, uh, uh, he said uh, Bill has the temporary custody of this child. He says, why, why do you think that you should have custody? And she says, well, I'm just a woman. I could take care of him better than he could and laid out a bunch of excuses that weren't legitimate at all. And he says, you know, he said, there is no reason here for this. He said, I don't know how that sheriff acted that way, but that was an error. And he said, I want you to give that child back right away. And he turned to me and he says, how soon can you be down there? And I said, uh, and I'm looking at the clock. I said, I can make it by three o'clock. And he said, okay, he's going to meet you at three o'clock. He turned to me again. He says, where do you want me to meet you? Meet her. This was probably not real nice, but I said, at the sheriff's office. <laughs> and, and so... So the phone was hung up. I knew I probably was shaking too bad to drive myself. So Steve Howe drove me now. When Cameron came out of the other car, he ran up to me and just hung on. Not, not for 30 seconds, 
not for two minutes, but he hung on so long that even the policemen were standing on one foot and then the other, wondering when this was gonna break up. And I finally said, come on, Cam, we can go home. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever gonna take you again. There comes a time that little boy wanted to hang on to my hand. You know, for the next year, we slept in a bunk bed. I slept down below. He slept up above. And to go to sleep at night, the only way he could go to sleep was to hang his hand down over the side so I could hang on to it. For a year, that's the way he went to sleep. There is going to come a day not too far hence when the judge of this whole world is going to say to that fallen angel, let my children go. Those who have been captured by death, by disease, by addictiveness, God is going to say, let my children free. You do not have custody anymore. And Satan may hold up a paper and said, yeah, I have temporary custody because they died, they're mine. And Jesus will hand just his hands and say, you claim them because they are dead, but I can make them alive again. And I have permanent custody because of my hands. Amen. I'm saying to you that the time is coming when that judge of our universe is going to say that to the world and things will not be as they are. We won't be talking about the good old days because they will seem terrible to us. We'll be talking about an irresistible future with Christ. We are not going to want to let go of his hand. My son told me a story the other night came home from church, told me a story, so I'll just tell it the way it was told to me. There's a lady in his church that has been inviting a lot of people to church lately, and he asked her about it. Now, this lady does not have, well, let me just say her reputation is probably very tarnished. But she has come to Jesus, and it's a new world for her. A new world from the way her addictive past was. And she goes to church regularly, and it's not just a pretense. And she said, and he says, yeah, you invite a lot of people. And she said, well, maybe, I don't know if any of you read Adventist Frontier Missions, a lot of stories lately about God giving dreams to different people to lead them to Christ. And this lady said, I was dreaming. She said, I, I was wondering what heaven was like. And I had this dream. And she said, I was up in heaven. And she said, oh, the fields and the mountains were beautiful. I can't even explain it to you. And then... She said she kind of came towards the end of her dream, how beautiful it was. And she said, but Lord, I, I didn't see any people here. I didn't see any of my friends. And he said, I've invited them. But they don't listen to me. But they'll listen to you. He said, if you want friends here, it's time to invite them.
And that was the end of her dream. She said, that's why I invite people to church every week. What about us? What about us? Got this 10 days of prayer coming up. Could the Lord open our eyes to new possibilities instead of looking at the good old days and the good old ways of doing things? Does the Holy Spirit have something new for you to do or to think? I can picture it in my mind. I can picture it in a solemn way. The Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit looking down at this earth in total chaos and them remembering what the Garden of Eden was like, how beautiful it was, the hopes of having relationships with each person as close as if it was their own, only one the high hopes that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit had looking down at this earth so destroyed. And I can hear, not maybe with earthly words, but I could hear Jesus say to the Father, you know that nice world that we had? I can do it again, Daddy. I can do it again. Thank you.